0: The Cruciform Life, a life shaped by the cross. But I thought I'd start with a story. It's a quick story. But when I was five years old, I invented one of the dumbest games ever. We'll call it King of the Fire Hydrant. Uh, My mom still lives in the same house. We were on a a street that ends in a cul-de-sac, and in the middle of the circle at the end of the road was a grass area and a fire hydrant. And I was playing with a kid named Jutson, and I was very confident, despite um, the way a hydrant is designed, <laughs> I was very confident that Jutson could not knock me off of the fire hydrant, and so I invented this game. And I said something along the lines of, I bet you can't knock me off this fire hydrant. I think it took about three seconds. I don't even know if he just breathed on me, but I immediately slipped down. That You know, it's just, a, it's just round. And I bang the back of my head on the hydrants and my reward was five stitches, right? Dumbest game ever. I never played again. Do not recommend it. It's stupid. Maybe you've played dumb games or been invited to play games that just have dumb rules. It's kind of silly, but in many ways, that's what Paul is about to embark on with the church in Corinth. Uh, as we spent the last two weeks in chapters 8 and 9, and I told you they went together, they were very unified in their thought, and so we talked a lot about generosity for two weeks. In chapter 10, Paul does a, is a hard right. I mean, it's just a huge shift to a new topic. The intensity is just elevated, and now he's really going after, um, we'll, we'll have a variety of names for these people, these opponents, these super apostles. This morning, I'll just call them bullies. These people who have entered into the church in Corinth, and, and we're going to spend, I and mean, really it's the next three weeks, and so uh, we'll only go so far with his argument this morning. I want you to understand chapter 10 because it gets us into it, but we can't go too far because chapter 11 is awesome, and, and so much of what is going to resolve comes from what he's going to say in chapter 11 and chapter 12. So We're going to kind of work our way through chapter 10 this morning, and then I want to do a little bit of a background dive as to why Paul views things this way. Where is it coming from in his life? But in other words, just to connect it to my introduction, Paul is going to try to help the church in Corinth see that these bullies have brought the game of Babylon into the church. And he's like, it's a dumb game. Such a dumb game. Why would you play by these rules? <laughs> or even that last song we were singing this morning, we there's this redeeming love is this new theme that we've learned. <laughs> and once you've learned the redeeming love of Christ, why would you go back to the foolish, stupid game of Babylon? You played it once, you got five stitches, don't ever play it again. We're done with that game. It's stupid. Jesus has set you free from the game of Babylon, of trying to get to the top of the ladder. But the only way to get there is to push people down. What has Jesus done? He said, no, go to the prisoners. Go to the people who haven't eaten for 30 days. That's where you go. And you serve there. And you lift them up. And that's how my kingdom comes. So Paul says, we're done with that game. We're going to live this cruciformed life, this life shaped by the cross where we have nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to prove, and no one to please. We don't have to struggle anymore because we've been overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. So let's kind of get into this. We'll start in chapter 10, verse 1. I just want to walk our way through the whole chapter, but you'll get a sense. What, what's going to happen is over the next couple of weeks, Paul doesn't just lay out, these are the charges against me. Because his apostleship, he's the one who planted this church, but these outsiders have come in and they've just stirred up the pot to get the church to question Paul. Who is Paul? Is he really an apostle? And so we're going to have to kind of read kind of like in a mirror. You'll see as Paul makes his statements, you'll, you can kind of intuit what they would have been saying about him. And you'll see some of those things here, and then we'll get more of those things as we continue on in the next few weeks. Now, Paul is going to start, and I think this is really important because it is pretty intense language as we read through this. But he says, I, Paul, appeal to you with the gentleness and kindness of Christ. Now, why does Paul say this? Because he's met the one whose yoke is easy and burden is light. He's met the risen Christ who is gentle and humble in heart. He is where we find rest for our soul. Paul was rescued from the foolish game in Babylon. The Babylon in his day was Rome, right? But he's rescued from that, and he now knows the rest of Christ. Why would I ever leave the easy yoke of Jesus? He's gentle, he's kind, he's humble. And so I I will not wage war in the ways of Babylon, so just know I'm br- I'm matching your intensity, Church. I'm matching your intensity, opponents, super apostles. But I can only do it with gentleness and kindness, because that's who Jesus is. Like, oh, you're going to get now. Though I realize you think I am timid in person and bold only when I write from far away. So you already can see some, but you'll even see them more as we keep reading. Well, I'm begging you now so that when I come, I won't have to be bold with those who think we act from human motives. In other words, I really do think there's a problem in the church. It's mostly these outsiders. And I think Paul in his mind believes that the church in Corinth can handle this and can resolve it. And so he's writing to inspire and motivate and encourage them to see they're playing a dumb game by dumb rules. Why would you do that when you know the theme of redeeming love? Snap out of it. And set this right. Or I I will, I'll be bold when I get there if you haven't, because I will not lose you. The ways of Babylon are so seductive, but I will not lose you. (laughs) Because because you've been freed in Christ. Verse 3, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. Again, this is just what I've been saying. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons. Right? What are, what are, well, since our last series, sometimes I say, we, you can't build the kingdom of God using the tools of Babylon. These tools are designed for death. You can't build the kingdom of life with the tools of death. You need the tools of life. And so we only use God's mighty weapons because we do need to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. Even as I was reading through this, I was reminded of, I heard a pastor say a few years ago and it really stuck with me that the church persuades by love, witness, reason, rhetoric, spirit, and if need be martyrdom, but never by force or coercion. The church persuades by love, witness, reason, rhetoric, spirit, and if need be by martyrdom, never by force or coercion. (laughs) Paul, we're going to use, he's using, he's using the language of a siege, he's sieging, so the, these outsiders have come and they've taken captive the church, and Paul's, it's, it's, a, it's military language, right? It's a siege, he's going to free the city, but he's only going to use the weapons of the kingdom. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God, we capture their rebellious thoughts so that we can teach them to obey Christ, because that's where life is found. Hearing and doing the word of Christ. And after you have become fully obedient, and Paul really believes this. Again, he's appealing to the church, you'll do this. You'll follow Jesus. You'll remember the way of the cross. You'll set things right. And once you've been fully obedient to Christ, then we will punish everyone who remains disobedient. It's the fall of Babylon. There's this whole theme that runs through the scripture of God's judgment on Babylon. It's it's like decreation language. Babylon, in one sense, it falls in on itself. What happens when everyone tries to get to the top of the ladder? (laughs) The ladder just falls over, right? I mean, Paul just knows that's what's going to happen. And that's why he's so concerned. This church is going to fall apart if you play Babylon's games, right? Verse 7. Look at the obvious facts. Those who say they belong to Christ must recognize that we belong to Christ as much as they do. So you're going to start to hear the defense that these outsiders, these super apostles, these opponents have been using to build up their case against Paul. I may seem to be boasting too much about the authority given to us by the Lord. Listen to this. But our authority builds you up. what, What do we do with the power God's given us? We build up. We lift you up. We take the role of a servant, of a slave, and we lift you up. What do these guys do? They tear you down. They're they're flaunting their power. They're defending their power. We build up, they tear down. So I'm not ashamed of using my power because I'm using it like Jesus uses it. He's given me power and I'm using it to build you up. Look, I'm not, verse 9, I'm not trying to frighten you by my letters because here's, some say Paul's letters are demanding and forceful, but in person he's weak and his speeches are worthless. We'll get into more of that in chapter 11, kind of unpacking this whole idea of weakness, but these people should realize that our actions when we arrive in person will be as forceful as what we say in our letters from far away. I'm not going to lose this, church. Come on, church. Verse 12, don't worry. I love this. We wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are. Again, you're getting, you're getting into the argument, right? But they are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as the standard of measurement. How ignorant. Paul would say, that's as dumb as playing king of the fire hydrant. Why would you do that? Stupid. It's like playground like, my dad's bigger than your dad. It's just like, what, what is the measurement? And why, what have we said all the way through from the first week in this series? Our standard of measurement is Jesus on the cross. Our definition of beauty is Jesus on the cross. And and I know we talk at Crossview, we say, uh, be with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. And it, it can feel like, how am I ever going to live like Jesus? He's the embodiment of love. And I know and that's why that's why every week we gather here and we confess our sins and we, we sing and we sing about the forgiveness of God and that we've been washed clean Because because that's a pretty high standard, I get it. But you have to understand that Jesus is the clearest expression of what it means to be human. So if you and I aim for any standard other than Jesus, we're aiming at something less than human. I don't want to be less than human. You don't want to be less than human. It's a high standard, but it's the standard that we aim at. It's the only one we have. And Jesus on the cross is the clearest expression. Don't be stupid, Paul says. Don't be stupid. Verse 13, and now what he's going to do then... So I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I read all these books. I don't know what Paul's exact definition of an apostle would be. I don't know exactly. But I do know there's a few things that Paul would say are true of an apostle. Encountered the risen Christ. Paul had an encounter with the risen Christ. He was commissioned himself by the risen Christ to go and plant Gentile churches. But part of this for Paul, I mean, he knows there's a whole variety of gifts that God gives to the church. But if he gifts you to be an apostle, then it means you go to new territory and you plant churches where there are no churches. <laughs> That's part of what it means to be apostles. So Paul is pulling his hair out that these quote unquote super apostles are claiming to be apostles when they're just trying to take over a church that he planted. You understand how much that aggravates Paul. He has no, he has, I mean, that's the, for him, that's one of the clearest expressions that these guys are, are lying to you because they've come on his turf and other, that's not what apostles do. So verse 13, we will not boast about things done outside our area of authority. We will boast only about what has happened within the boundaries of the work God has given us, which includes our working with you. We're the ones who planted you. We are not reaching beyond these boundaries when we claim authority over you as if we had never visited you. We were the first to travel to Corinth with the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul considers that a great privilege. It's meaningful to him. Verse 15, now do we boast and claim credit for the work someone else has done? I mean, again, you're hearing the argument. Instead, we hope that your faith will grow so that the boundaries of our work among you will be extended. Paul had a dream. You read it in Romans. He wanted to go beyond into Spain, he wanted to keep going with the gospel. And we will be able to go and preach the good news in other places far beyond you where no one else is working. That's what apostles do. Then there will be no question of our boasting about work done in someone else's territory. As the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only in the Lord. Verse 18, and when people commend themselves, again, next week we'll get into even more so how these super apostles are commending themselves. Paul says it doesn't count for much. That's a dumb game, dumb rules, don't do it. Let's, let's focus on the important thing, it's, it's, it's for the Lord to commend you. That's that's when we know when God's really moving, and that's what's most important. We want to keep our eyes on Jesus. So I told you we can't go too far down the line because chapter eleven is so connected to chapter ten. And he's what's I'll, I'll just I'll just get you excited. So Paul basically is like, I can't play your game, but there's a battle going on. So all right, I'll play your game but I'm going to play it in a cruciform way. That's why it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, because Paul's so, he's sarcastic and ironic and he's funny. All right, I'll play your game, but I'm going to play the fool. That's what we'll look at next week. That's what he does next week. But I wanted, I was doing a little bit of thinking myself, where is Paul coming from? How did Paul get here? And, and what is Paul's understanding of bullies and And how to treat bullies and and can bullies be changed and all that. What's Paul's understanding of Babylon? And permit me, we've talked about this before, but I I want to go all the way. Paul knew the Old Testament scripture well. I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 11. It is, it, is, it is one of these famous Christmas passages. We read it at Advent most years. It's the celebration, the longing. Isaiah is looking into the future and writing this poetry about what this amazing king would look like if he, if he came from the line of David and that he would, he would bring justice to the poor. That those on the bottom would be lifted up. And Isaiah is really what this this king would be like. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, a very famous passage, Isaiah writes this, In that day the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. I mean, Paul would have been very, very familiar with this passage. And Paul would have known that the problem that Isaiah is addressing of injustice in this world is is not going to be fixed when carnivores become herbivores. That's not what Isaiah is worried about. Isaiah is writing poetry and he is worried about human predators. And he's believing, he's looking forward to a day when a wolf and a lamb will live together. He's not worried about carnivores and herbivores because it's okay for beasts to behave beastly. It is not okay for humans who bear the image of God to behave beastly. That's not okay. And when this new king comes, he will change things, and and he is going to make us humane, his people humane, and we will care for everyone, and the poor will be provided for, and the exploited will get the fairness and justice they deserve. And this is going to come about, you can read Isaiah 11, the whole section if you want. It's going to come about by the word of the Messiah. He's going to speak and bring about change in the hearts and the minds of the human beasts. And these human beasts, instead of behaving beastly, they're going to learn to be human. As Jesus teaches us what it means to be human. And the wolf will live together with the lamb. Now Christmas, as Christians, we say Christmas is the birth of this king that Isaiah is anticipating. (laughs) And so we would say the day that the wolf lives together with the lamb has come. And you may look around you. We just heard a story of what's happening in other parts of the world. You say, does the wolf ever really live together with the lamb? Is it possible? And Paul would say, it's so possible. Paul would say, I was the wolf. Paul would say, I was beastly. I took advantage of people. They feared me. Paul would say, I devoured lambs. I was there when Stephen was stoned for his faith in Christ. I went into the flock of Jesus and I dragged sheep before authorities and I imprisoned them and I put some to death. Paul would say, I went before Babylon or Rome and I got arrest warrants. I was allowed to go north and I was on my way to attack the flock in Damascus because I was a wolf. And Paul would tell you, I was a bully. But Jesus didn't out-bully me. He met me on that road. And he pierced my soul with a question. Why are you doing this? Why are you persecuting me? And Paul would tell you that the wolf, the wolf became a lamb. Actually, he would tell you he became a shepherd or, or an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, the wolf lives together with the lamb. He would tell you that from his own story. Jesus is the one who tames the beast, the beastliness within our hearts and shows us another way. And the church is where we gather together to, to learn and obey the words, the teachings of Jesus so that we can live this radically different life. Because I'm done with that stupid game. This is life. This is life. And this is joy. And it's not a game because it's all gift, right? It's all gift. It comes freely. Well, we've been talking about, the generosity of God. Paul was a bully, but Jesus didn't out-bully the bully. He introduced Paul to his gentleness and kindness. And he changed him with a question. And he captured Paul's curiosity. And Paul is going to study I mean, he knows the risen Lord, and he's going to study the teachings of Jesus. You know this because if you read through his letters, he is often quoting or pulling from the Sermon on the Mount. I I tell you this all the time. You cannot read the Sermon on the Mount too much. You can't do it. I pray the Beatitudes every day. They're in Matthew chapter 5. They are upside down. I need to pray them every day because Babylon is so seductive. And I have started collecting creative ways of articulating the Beatitudes— I have a whole bunch of just creative ways of what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes or some modern-day Beatitudes that define modern-day Babylon. I've, I have several in a, in a Word document, and I was rereading them this week as trying a, a way to remind us the difference between the kingdom of God and Babylon, and I came across this. This is from a few years ago I added this to my list. Let me just—I have a slide you can follow along. I just want to read— just just kind of take this in and if you if you, you don't have to write this down if you just email me and I can send it to you if you if you like this but the spirit of the age blesses the cocky and self-confident but Jesus he blesses the poor in spirit the spirit of the age blesses those who are shallow and thus happy all the time but Jesus he blesses those who have the capacity to mourn deeply The spirit of the age blesses the power-hungry who want to run the world, but Jesus blesses the meek who are willing to trust God. The spirit of the age blesses the privileged protectors, but Jesus blesses the justice-seekers. The spirit of the age blesses those who think justice is retribution and revenge. Jesus blesses the merciful instead. The spirit of the age blesses the clever ones who come up with the best schemes. That's so true, isn't it? We love to bless the clever ones who come up with the best schemes. Jesus blesses the pure hearted who have no schemes. In other words, people are not a resource to be used for my own gain. People are made in the image of God, and that in and of themselves means they're worthy to be loved. They're God's idea, they're an end in themselves. The spirit of the age blesses those who are great at waging war. Jesus blesses those who have the patience to work for peace. The spirit of the age blesses those who fight for might. Jesus blesses those who suffer for what is right. Again, sit with the Beatitudes for a while and wrestle with them and let them challenge you because they are upside down. They're always always inviting me deeper into the kingdom in, in creative ways. And I know that sounds upside down, and maybe you're thinking, well, that seems even extreme even for Paul. Are you sure? Well, I'll just give you one snapshot into chapter 11. Next week's a longer chapter. So I'll just give you one little piece, just so you know that this is where Paul is going. And, and I think it's fitting because he kind of begins chapter 10 with, 10 with this military siege of a city language. So let me tell you that the highest honor in the Roman military, if I'm understanding things correctly, was the... Um, uh, Corona Morales, that's the Corona moralis, and, and what this was, was if you were sieging a city with the Roman, the, the, the army, the empire, if you were the first one, and you can imagine why, toughest, strongest, fiercest, bravest, if you were the first one over the wall when you were penetrating a city in a siege, you were awarded the Corona Morales. Keep that in mind. We're going to just read the last couple verses in First Corinthians chapter 11. Here's Paul. This is just, again, a foretaste of next week, boasting in his weakness. Chapter 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of eternal praise, knows that I am not lying. When I was in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas kept guards at the city gates to catch me, probably, we don't know, probably because he was sharing the gospel. Look at what Paul says. The Corona Morales is the first one over the wall. Paul said, I had to be lowered in a basket like a coward through a window in the city wall to escape from him. (laughs) That's what I mean. Paul's like, I don't play the Babylon game, but if you're going to force me to play it, I'm going to play the fool. Church, I'm trying to show you how stupid the Babylon game is. I'm not the first one over the wall in a war. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, out, I'm out in a basket through a hole, <laughs> but that's what I'll boast in because of this life that Jesus has invited me into. There's lots of ways of, and we'll talk, we'll talk more about this, about power. It's important to be thinking about power because we're going to be talking about the weakness, but also the power. So one more thought from Paul. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, it's one of my favorite prayers in the New Testament. It's beginning in verse 19. Paul is going to talk about the kind of power that the followers of Jesus have access to. And it, it's, it's a very different conception of power. It's a, it's a power that was expressed when Jesus, Jesus gave up his life and was resurrected by the power of love and sacrifice. So just listen to these words. I'll read them, say a few things, and then I want to pray these over you. Paul says, "I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him." Cuz we are being invited into weakness, but it's not weakness where there's no power. You and I were made to harness the power that God has given us, but to do it in the way of Jesus. To use whatever power we have to lift others up to bless others. Paul says, "This is the what kind of power? The same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. That's the power. Seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. I mean, you want to talk about power, Christ at the right hand of the Father. That's power. Now he's far above any, far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything. I mean, nothing. I mean, you want to play a comparison game, nothing compares to Jesus. Not only in this world but also in the world to come because he's not bound by space or by time. I mean, he's the one who created space and time. (laughs) Stop trying to compare. I mean, Jesus, is. there's no one like him. Verse 22, God the Father has put all things under the authority of his son, Jesus, and he has made him head over all the church. And again, in case you're missing this theme, for the benefit of the church. This is where Paul has learned this. God didn't do this for himself. <laughs> he did it for the benefit of you and me. Unbelievable power to serve you and me. Verse 23, I love this verse. I've been actually revisiting this verse more and more lately just because I think it's so profound. I mean, just <laughs> the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ and who's Christ? Oh, he just happens to be the one who fills all things everywhere with himself. He's, he is life itself. He sustains all, he holds all things together. I mean, if he stops doing what he's doing, all of creation just falls apart. That's through Jesus. That's power. A specific kind of power, and it's available. To us, that's that's Paul's point. That's what he's leaning into. If this is something he believes, and yes, he's always, he doesn't mind being weak because if he goes to the cross, he believes he is going to encounter the same power that Jesus encountered. In other words, how do I? Jesus absorbs death into himself on the cross. And what does he give back? He gives back mercy and forgiveness and love and life. It's the kind of power that gives up status and, and, and power and absorbs the hit and gives back love and mercy. It's the power to reverse death into life. It's, this is why you go into some of these prisons. <laughs> it's the kind of power that can take the most tragic human being and through an encounter with Jesus turns them back towards life. But it's also true for you and I. Again, I know I talk to you. I know sometimes there's ah you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. It, I mean, it does, it does matter what you've done, but that doesn't keep you from encountering this kind of life. Maybe what you did is actually really tragic and there's a lot of repenting. It does, it does matter what you've done, but, but it's not too big for Christ to forgive you, for him to show you another way. I mean, this is, I mean you, you'll never find another king like this who lets his enemies kill him. <laughs> I mean, Jesus totally, fl- he, he changes the game. He rewrites the script by living out the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. He lives it. And then he invites us through the Spirit of God to live it with him. And let me say it this way. It's the kind of life that humans cannot take away because humans didn't create it. So much of the life that we're struggling for in our game of Babylon is because we've built these cities <laughs> and we create this game. Well, there's a bigger story out there with a fuller life that God created and God gives to you and God invites you into. Follow Jesus. Run to him. Experience through weakness the power of what he... yes. To confess your sins and to be honest about the pain you've caused others it takes, a high, it takes a high degree of courage and honesty and humility and authenticity and maturity, and it'll make you feel weak. It'll break you, <laughs> and then Jesus will put you back together. So what I want to do this week is invite you, I think it'll be helpful for the next two weeks as we're going to be talking about weakness and power. I, would, I invite you, you don't have to do this, it's just if the Spirit leads you, but I would say find a picture or two, or if you have a statue of a cross, or just, there's so much amazing artwork around the cross throughout the history. I'm going to Google it and find your favorite painting of Jesus on the cross, or your favorite statue of a crucifix, and spend maybe 15 minutes sitting with Jesus and just thinking through what is the cross One of our dangers as Christians is to oversimplify the cross and make it less than what it is. The cross is meant to reshape all of our lives. And it's how we find the deep life that's available to us in Jesus. Amen? All right, let me pray over you these words from Paul, and then we'll sing another song. I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now He is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made Him head over all things for the benefit of the church And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. And because that is true, Jesus, you are here. Would you meet with us? You are at our home. Would you meet with us? You are in our car. Would you meet with us? You are at our place of work. Would you meet with us? You are in the conversations that make us feel small. You are in our arguments. You are in our pain. You are are everywhere. Would you meet with us? And would you display for us this power that turns death into life. In your name we pray. Amen.